If you've never seen an ox thresh, you're going to see it in just a minute. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4, where we are going to continue in our sub-series of our exposition of Luke. We're slowing down in this section to just take a deeper look at temptation and sin because... Every Christian deals with it. Every Christian battles sin and temptation. And and I thought, you know, we could uh, do this in one fell swoop. And so I kind of lied to the secretaries. And then they put, I was going to put, preach all 13 verses. And, and of course, that didn't happen. Uh, so then last week, I lied to you and told you I was going to get through the first two verses. And I lied to you again uh, because that didn't happen. And so this morning, we're just going to look at um, just another fragment of verse two. And uh, we may be in verse two for a while longer. And you may be looking there thinking, are you sure? And I'm sure. I am sure. Uh, I, I keep having these problems. I, I start studying it and there's so much there that I think, you know, I should tell them about this. And you know what? I need to explain this. And what I want to really do is give you practical help for dealing with sin and temptation. Because there are so many temptations and snares in the world that Christians need specific truth, lots of good doctrine, well-rounded information so that you can understand what's going on and you can win the war against temptation. And so that's what we're trying to do here. And so um, if you never sin, this is probably not for you. But if you sin, uh, I hope this is helpful. Last Lord's Day, we spent most of our time just preparing to look at the temptation of Jesus, which is in verse 3 and following. And, of course, we never got there. But first we learned from James chapter 4, verse 17, and 1 John 3, 4, and 1 John 5, 17, that sin is lawlessness, that sin is unrighteousness, that sin is knowing the right thing to do, and not doing it. That's what sin is. Anything that falls short of God's perfect holy standard, either in thought or deed, is sin. So we've got that cleared up. Secondly, we learned that all men are sinners, even Christians. We noted this not to say that, well, since we're Christians and we're going to sin, then why not sin that grace might abound? That's not why we mentioned that. We mentioned that just as a way of encouragement so that you aren't overcome with some sort of grief thinking that, well, I've sinned. I, you know, I must not be saved. No, Christians sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible says if a Christian says they have no sin, they are a liar and the truth is not in them. They're not a Christian. So Christians battle sin. It's expected. Third, we learn that though a Christian sins, they don't need to sin. They don't need to sin. There is never a time when you have to sin. We learn from James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that each one is tempted and carried away by their own lusts, which means no one has ever or will ever make you sin. Sin is always your fault. Fourth, we learned that when Christians do fall into the sin they choose to engage in, they usually repent. They confess their sin. We learn from Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, that the righteous man falls seven times 
but rises again. He rises again. And fifth, we learn that God always provides a way of escape so that you don't have to sin. God is watching you. He is the perfect heavenly father. His grace is always sufficient. So there's never going to be a time ever in your life where you have to say, well, Lord, I I just couldn't help it. You know, this thing came upon me and there was no way out. I had to sin in this situation. This person made me sin. You just don't know my mother-in-law. No, that's never the case. There is always a way of escape so you never have to sin, which means that sin, your sin, is always a choice for you that you make in defiance against God. Six, and finally, we learned that temptation is not forcing somebody to sin. Temptation is merely an, an appeal to sin, a solicitation to sin, an offer to sin. But it, it isn't the will to sin. It's merely an offer. It is the bait with the hook in it. It is the poisonous apple. But you have to take the bait. You have to bite the apple. Satan doesn't do that. He can't make you, as a believer, sin. And so you need to keep these things in mind because as we go through and we look at sin and temptation in some detail here, you have to keep those things in mind because if you don't have those foundational principles right, then you're going to be wondering why things are the way they are. And so if you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 4 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 13. Luke writes, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand in the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus, oh, we'll just stop there. There's some other stuff. Power of the Spirit. We'll get there later. Okay. 
But let's look at the text here and let's find out. Well, let's do a little review. What do we learn from verse one? You look there and you say, well, the text says Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. And we asked ourselves, what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? And we just learned this. Being full of the Holy Spirit just means that you have the Spirit's abiding present presence with you and help and that you are walking according to the will of God, trusting in the power of the Spirit to lead you. That's all it means. Jesus was trusting in the Spirit's help as he lived. And we noted that the text says in verse 1, makes it very clear that Jesus was just finished returning from the Jordan. Well, what happened there? Well, at the Jordan, he was baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist dunked him under the water. And when he came out, two significant things happened. The Holy Spirit manifested itself in bodily form like a dove and lit upon Jesus. Uh, We don't know who all saw this, but uh, Jesus surely did. And most likely John and possibly all the crowds letting them know that Jesus was the anointed one of God. Secondly, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus from the outside outset of his ministry had a divine pronunciation that told John, Jesus, and maybe even the crowds, this is is the Messiah. And it is right after that, that this narrative takes place. And so we are going to learn from last. I thought we were going to try and do three and, and and we're only going to do one, one good point from the text with seven sub points. So one point is this, the longer you are exposed to temptation, the more vulnerable you become. This is our second major lesson, the first for today, but the second major lesson we learn from the text. The longer you are exposed to temptation, the more likely it is going to be that you are going to cave into that temptation. Notice that verse 2 tells us that Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by the devil. The word tempted is a present active participle, which means that Jesus was in a continual state of being tempted by the devil. He was from that time as he was undergoing a spiritual fast, he was being tempted over and over and over again. Now, it just so happens that we have three temptations mentioned for us to look at in Matthew and Luke. And the three that we have actually happened after or at the very end of the 40 days. And we'll get into that later. But it was the father's desire. Think about this. It was the father's desire to send Jesus, have the spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness for the very purpose that he knew he would be tempted. Well, that doesn't sound very godly, does it? Very fatherly. Here, you, go play on the freeway. That doesn't sound like a thing that God would do. But the reason we have a trouble understanding this is because a lot of times we don't understand the difference between temptation and testing. There is a difference. God 
tests us. And he tests us to give us an opportunity to trust in him and rely on his resources to obey. Satan, on the other hand, tempts us. He will tempt you to not trust God, to not rely on God's resources so that you disobey. And what is interesting, when you look in the New Testament and you look at the word translated here, tempt, it is sometimes used, sometimes translated tempt as tempt to evil, other times test as to give an opportunity to obey. For instance, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, it speaks of Abraham being tested when he offered up Isaac. And you remember the story. What happened here? Abraham is, he's old, God promises him this child. He says, oh, okay. And 25 years later, he says, you're going to have a child. And they say, okay. And um, then what happens? They have the child. And so they have this miraculous promised child. And then God tests Abraham and says, go kill him. Go make him a sacrifice. And Abraham follows through takes Isaac up on the mountain and is just about ready to plunge the knife into him. And God stops him and provides a lamb in substitution for Isaac. And that was a great example of Abraham being tested, even in probably the hardest thing a parent could ever be tested in would be to offer up their own child especially their own miraculous child and sacrifice it. And he went to the very end. He was going to go through on it. But what did he do? He trusts God and God stopped him. He was tested and his testing proved his faith. And from that time on, he became the father of what? Of faith. He was the father of faith. We know from James 1.13 that God tempts no man to sin, but he does test us, doesn't he? He tests us so that we have opportunities to obey. He says, here you go. Here's my spirit. Here's my church. Here's the fellowship of the believers. Here's the word of God. Here's prayer. Here's all the things you need to escape from temptation. And I'm going to put you into a test to give you an opportunity to obey. That's what God does. Satan, on the other hand, is hoping that you sin. So he has evil motives. God has good motives. Satan wants us to disobey. God wants us to obey. But sometimes the same exact word is used. You know, some of some of you uh, have been parents or are parents now and maybe uh, have uh, enjoyed trying to teach a little one how to walk. And at first you you're kind of holding their hands and, you know, they've got. You've got it, you know, they're gripping one finger each and you're kind of doing this and they're kind of wobbling and they're going along. You're teaching them how to walk. Now, is your goal as a parent to make sure they fall on their face and smash their face on the ground? Well, no. Your goal is to give them an opportunity to what? To walk. And you're giving them all the help they need so they can walk and learn to walk on their own. Well, that's kind of how it is with the Christian. God is your heavenly father. He wants to see you walk by his spirit. 
So he gives you his word. He gives you other believers. Um, He sends angels. He uses providence. He uses all sorts of things to help you walk in the spirit. And it's not for the purpose of seeing you fall in your face. It's for the purpose of seeing you stand firm as a mature believer. So if you're asking yourself, Jack, why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days? Now, you know, the answer, because God wanted Jesus to be thoroughly tested to prove his faith and to prove that he was the son of God. And there's one other thing. So that he could sympathize with you. And this is such a great thing. We're going to get into this later, too. Uh, I'm having trouble arranging all this material, so we're just kind of winging it. But um, think about this. What if Jesus was never tempted? What if Jesus never knew what it was like to be tempted? How could you go to him and say, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling here. I'm having a hard time here. But he does know, doesn't he? And you can't go to him and say, Lord, you just don't know how it is. I mean, you just you just don't understand this because he does understand it. And and the truth be known, he is the one who can say to you, no, you don't understand. Because I had the huge crushing weight of temptation upon me for many, many, many days. I have been tempted to a far, far greater degree than you ever have. And I didn't cave in. So what do you want to know about temptation? I know exactly how it is. He is the expert on resisting temptation. And that is why I think two of the primary reasons why the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to prove he was the son of God. And so that he could be that sympathetic high priest that Hebrew talks about. So when you come to him and say, Lord, listen, I am struggling in this area. He says, I know how it is. I know how it is. And so what's happening? Satan is tempting Jesus. God is testing Jesus at the same time to the maximum degree. And that is what we see in the text. Not only that, the text says Jesus was tempted. If you look there for 40 days. But what you need to understand is this. There's this. This, when you read Matthew's account, Matthew seems to say something a little different than Luke. And you kind of have to ask yourself, how am I going to put these together? Matthew seems to indicate that Jesus went on this spiritual fast for 40 days. And after the 40 days, he was tempted. Luke tells us here that Jesus was tempted the whole time. So you say, well, what was it? Both. Jesus was tempted the whole time. And at the very end or after the 40 days were completed, then the three temptations that we have recorded in the Gospels occurred. That's how you put them together. So we can say this. Jesus was tempted throughout the 40 days and the temptations we have recorded happened either at the very end after the completion of the days on the last day or After that, you know, you may walk past a candy bowl at work. 
39 times and be fine. And never take a piece of that chocolate there, your favorite kind, that you have told yourself, you know, I'm not eating more any more candy. You've resolved. I'm not doing it again. And you're fine right after lunch. But then what happens? Then what happens is, is you, you know, 1.30 comes along, 2 o'clock, you start getting a little hungry. You keep walking by that bowl of candy. And every time you walk by the bowl of candy, you have an opportunity to what? Cave in or not cave in. Grab the candy or not. And you're fine still until 3.30, 4, 4.30. Your stomach's growling. You're thinking about dinner. And on that 40th time, you come strolling by and you look and you lust. And your mind says, listen, if you're going to have a piece, have four. And so (laughs) you grab those dainty morsels, you take them to your desk and you open them up and you eat them. You ever been there? You know, I used to hunt and I used to practice with my bow and you can shoot a bow 20 yards, no problem, 30 yards, 40 yards is about kind of the maximum effective range of a bow and arrow. And at 120 feet, um, the trying to hit a bullseye, like a two inch or three inch bullseye is exponentially harder. If you're shooting at something that's 20 yards away, the arrow only drops about four inches. But if you shoot at something 30 yards away, the arrow drops about 18 inches. And when you shoot at something that's 40 yards away, it drops around four feet. So it exponentially gets more difficult. And so you you are actually arcing an arrow at the target. Gravity pulls on the weight of the arrow. The wind is pushing on the shaft of the arrow. And so even a slight deviation from your, your arm or the pull can send the arrow off the target. Now, let's just say... I'm at one end of the football field past the goal at the very end of the end zone. And you are at the far end, the other end of the football field, which is some 120 yards apart, 360 feet. Now, I can still shoot an arrow that distance. The problem is, is my accuracy is really bad. And if I were to take a shot at you, chances are very good. I would not be able to hit you because you would be so far away that when I'm shooting at you, I don't know how I don't even know how to make a shot that much. So I would just be guessing. But if you stood there and you let me shoot at you some more, I could figure some things out. I could say, "Ooh, the wind's blowing this way. Ooh, I need to bend back a little bit more. I need to pull back a little bit farther. I need to shoot in this direction here. And after 10 shots, 20 shots, 30 shots, your life would be in danger. Because I would be able to start figuring out that distance. 
And this is where some of you are, are right now in your life. You're standing back from temptation to a degree. You're not out of range. You're just standing back a bit because really you kind of like the concept of being within range. It's a thrill. But Satan, the master archer, is unceasingly launching arrows, arrows at you. And he wants to strike you down. He is shooting his fiery darts at you over and over again, getting range. And with every fiery dart he shoots at you, the chances of you being hit increase. You find yourself in a moment of weakness when no one is around, when accountability is low, when no one is watching, when you are isolated. Then you become a sitting duck. Now, most of us have heard that expression sitting duck, but let me tell you what it means. When you go duck hunting, you do dumb things. It's cold. It's the fall. It's freezing. The water's cold. You get up early when it's dark. You wander out into some pond, put a bunch of plastic animals out there. You sit in a little duck blind, freeze half to death. And then at light, you get these little plastic things and you start making duck noises, hoping that the ducks will come by. And sometimes they do. And they fly fast. A duck can fly about 40 miles an hour. And they're small, and so they're very hard to hit. But you know what? When they're sitting on the pond, no problem. And you don't want to become a sitting duck, a non-moving target. You know, you're dating that guy or engaged to that girl, and so far you have always had people around you, and you have never been alone together. And then Satan whispers in your ear, hey, why don't you stay up late and watch some TV? You'll be okay. I mean, you know, you can just do some channel surfing together. And he reminds you, you know, you've been good. You've been pure. You haven't fallen into sin. You know, you're a mature believer. You're strong in the Lord. And he convinces you against all sound reason that this is a wise thing to do. And so you decide, you know, it is a good thing. Idea And so late at night, when everybody else is in bed, you volunteer to be sitting ducks on the couch. And the longer you sit there, the greater the chances are that you are going to fall into sin. And it may be immorality. It may be food for you or power or money or materialism. The sin matters not. If you are within range, you are in danger. And the longer you stand within range, the higher the chances are you're going to be shot through. Now, I ask you this right now. Is your heart convicting you about something? Is there something in your life that right now you're thinking, oh, I am a sitting duck here. You know, you can't play cat and mouse with temptation. At first, you may think you're the cat. But pretty soon, you will become the mouse. 
and you will be devoured by the roaring lion. Let's say you're, you're sitting out there right now and you're thinking to yourself, you know, Jack, something very explicit has come to mind. And I realize that I am not out of range, but I don't even know what to do. And so that's why we're going slow, because I'm going to give you seven things. First, you need to confess your sin. Confess your sin. You need to come to the place where you realize that playing with temptation is outside the will of God. There are two Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 22, verse 3, and Proverbs 27, verse 12, which are very similar. Let me just read them to you. Listen to what they say. Proverbs 22, 3 says, The prudent sees evil and hides himself from it, but the naive go on and are punished for it. The prudent person, the wise person, the godly person looks out there and says, Whoa, that looks like temptation. There's some evil out there. I'm going to go this way. And he hides himself from it. The naive say, oh, look at out there. There there is some evil. There's some temptation out there. I'm going to go investigate. And then what happens when he investigates? He goes on and he's what? Punished for it. The other proverb is very similar. The prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. Don't go there. If you see evil up ahead and you can avoid it, avoid it. Now, sometimes you can't. And so then you have to take other means. We will get to that later. But if you know what's coming... If you understand the weakness of your flesh, if you're walking into the candy store and you're trying not to eat candy, if you're going by the bowl again, take a different route. Do what it takes so that you don't keep exposing yourself to the brink of temptation. It's like walking out in the field. I'll give you another shot then hiding a little bit and coming out. Okay, go shoot again. You will. You will fall if that's your mindset. And so confess that to God. Confess to God that you are taking some pleasure in toying with sin. And just admit it. It's not smart and it's not right. Secondly, you need to put on the full armor of God. Now, we aren't going to go into this because this is a whole nother sermon. Actually, it's a whole nother series of sermons. But let me just mention to you, we may, we may pop over there in the series, I don't know, but it's a great text. Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 mentions these items. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. These are resources that God has given you to protect yourself so you don't fall into sin when temptation comes. Make sure you have those things on. You know, just think about it this way. You know, right now we're at war. Uh, imagine you get shipped over to, you know, Iraq or whatever. And uh, and all of a sudden there's this big firefight and and, you know, there's bullets, bombs. And, and so all of a sudden you see one of your fellow soldiers walking out there in the desert. He's barefoot. He's got his swim trunks on. And he's walking out there in the middle of the field. What, what comes to your mind? Fool. 
Fool! What are you doing out there? Where, where are your camo clothing? Where's your boots? Where's your helmet? Where's your grenade launcher? Uh, where's your bulletproof vest? What are you doing out there in the open without your equipment on? And that is just what some people do. As Christians, they wander out there. Hey. You remember what Ephesians 6 says? It doesn't say when you get into a battle or if you get into a battle or if you should happen to get to the place where you're battling. It says our battle, which means the battle is going on all the time. You don't have to wait for it to happen. It's happening and it's going to happen until you die. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the principalities and the powers and the world forces of this darkness in the heavenly places. The battle is raging. You go out there. You don't have your armor on over for you. You're going to fall to temptation. You got to keep your armor on. Secondly, or thirdly, pray right after he says, put on your armor in Ephesians six and verse 18. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. Jesus told his disciples the same thing in Matthew six, didn't he? He said what? He said, you need to pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. That is a wise prayer. Prayer is the means by which you call down resources from God. You know, the angelic SWAT team, the helicopter of providence to deliver you, whatever. Prayer is when you ask God for resources and he wants to give you those resources. He's just waiting for you to trust him, which is what prayer is, right? Because so often we want to trust in who? Us. And you know what the Bible says about that? Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. He's going to live like a pincushion. Stabbed through with a million sins. The stony wasteland. Land of salt without inhabitant. Fourthly, the apostle Peter gives us some instruction. We're going to look there right now. Turn to first Peter chapter five. First Peter chapter five. There are so many great texts on this and it's hard to even categorize them all, but I'm doing my best. So it seems like we're skipping around. It's we are. But look at first Peter chapter five. We're trying to look at some of the resources you have or some of the practical things you can do in order to escape falling into sin. When temptation comes, you confess your sin, you put on the full armor of God, you pray at all times. Fourthly, First Peter 5, 8 and 9 says this, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Peter gives you four different specific things. One is don't be intoxicated. Don't be intoxicated with alcohol or drugs or the pleasures or lusts of this world or anything, but be sober. 
And that word sober means be clear thinking. I, I, I'm amazed at people who just don't think anymore. They just go through life just kind of winging it. I don't know is the answer that comes out of their mouth. They haven't thought. They aren't thinking. They kind of go through life like a, a pinball, a pinball machine. They're kind of bounced off of this temptation and bounced off of that and swatted with this paddle. And pretty soon down the center they go out of play. You know, if you knew there was a sniper out there on one of the buildings nearby and that he had a death wish and he was going to try and kill as many Christians who came out of this building after this service, would you just walk out there and get yourself a Krispy Kreme donut and a cup of coffee? (laughs) Not if you're smart. Not if you love your life. Why? Because there's danger out there. There's a sniper out there. He's trying to kill you. Well, Satan is out there. He's trying to kill you. He wants to kill you. And so you need to be sober and you need to be on the alert. Similar words, sober has to do with clear thinking. Being on the alert has to do with watchfulness. You're looking. You're watching. You're keeping an eye out. You don't just go through life all clueless and spacey. The world you live in is a wolf-infested forest. That's why Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep among what? Wolves. And you are to be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. To keep very diligent watch. To be on the alert. Because Satan is going to set up all sorts of tripwires and snares and things to take you out. So look around you. Don't be like a child who says, hey, there's a big road. That's a good place to play ball. Let's run out there on the freeway and play. And they don't even realize that there's there's cars coming down the freeway at 70 miles an hour. They're just out there. All they're caring about is themselves. I Listen, I just want to, that looks good to me. So many Christians go through life like that. They aren't thinking. They aren't on the alert. They aren't watching. They're just kind of just going with the flow. Stop, think, ask yourself, what's happening here? I tell that to my kids all the time. Stop, think, what's happening here? I'm telling you that. Stop, think, what's happening? Don't just just happen, bounce around through life. Be on the alert. Third, Peter tells us that Satan is out there and he's hunting for you. And I know this may seem, well, no duh to some of you, but I want you to know, most people will acknowledge that Satan is out there, that he is real, that he is an enemy, but they don't live like it. Their life denies what their lips profess. They say, oh, yeah, there's there's this angelic being who's super powerful, who is super smart, and he has myriads of demonic helpers and they are all over the globe right now and they're working hard to see that you fall into sin they are studying you they are after you they want you if they can't unsave you which they can't because you're a christian then they're going to do everything they can to make your life a complete failure so you dishonor god with your life It's not a mean guy down the street. That's not the problem. It's not the liberal this or the ungodly that or the terrorist thing over here. It's a spiritual war 
and men are Satan's pawns. Ephesians 2 says he is now working in the sons of disobedience. He works in them. They are held captive to do his will, and they don't even know it. There is slaves and there is pawns. And you need to keep this in mind so when you're out there in the world, don't just look at cars and roads and trees and good people and bad people. Look at the scriptures and believe them to be true that right now, if God so willed, he could tear out and open up the heavens and we would be like Elijah's servants and see all the fiery chariots and the the battle that is raging around us. That there are demons and good angels, holy angels all around the world working hard at all times to try and prevent people from obeying God. These wicked demons and Satan are working hard. He exists. He is real. And he wants to see you dead. And so know it. Peter just says he's walking around like a roaring lion. Do you know when lions roar? They roar when they get hungry right before they go on the prowl. One time I was watching a television program on a discovery thing or whatever. And uh, the guy was talking about lions and how the females go out there and do the hunting. And the guy says, how come the males don't do the hunting? You know what the guy said? They don't need to. They take anything they want. They are so big and so fierce, some of them are over 500 pounds, that when they see something, they just take it. So they wait for other people, other animals, hyenas and lions and whatever it is to kill things, and then they just take it. And you can't say, oh, you can't do that. Now, what would happen if all of a sudden somebody came running in here? Hey, hey there's a, a lion got out of the zoo over here and it's, it's wandering around in this area. Did you take your kids out there to your car? We'll all be up in my office. <laughs> yeah, you won't go out there. Why? Because there's a lion out there. He's roaring. And so you might get enough courage. And what would you do? Okay, look, be sober, be on the alert. And no, there's a lion out there. It would radically change your behavior, wouldn't it? You'd sprint to your car, get in there as fast as you could, and close the windows. Then you'd carefully drive home. Why? Because there's a lion out there. Well, there is a lion out there. That's what Peter's saying. There's a lion out there. Know it. Now, Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Peter's final advice is this. Resist Satan's temptations by standing firm in your faith. And you say, well, what does that mean? So now we're going to look at some other verses to explain some other verses, which we're using to explain another verse. Okay. Peter's final advice is to stand firm in your faith. To stand up really or stand up in the face of temptation. But what does that mean? Well, it means to put on the full armor of God. We know that. But look at 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. Here Paul is defending himself against false teachers who are accusing him of being carnal, of being fleshly, of being in sin and doing things for selfish motives. And so he's defending himself and his ministry. And he says this, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh... 
And he's not saying here we walk carnally or we're, we're, though we walk in sin. He's just saying though we walk in our mortal bodies. We do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Notice here, Paul says, we have weapons. Do you have your weapons? He says, we have these weapons of warfare. What are they? Primarily the word of God. And they are not just powerful. They are divinely powerful. And they do something, he says. They destroy fortresses. Now, he's not talking about buildings and, you know, things like that. He's talking about something else. What? He says what he's talking about. Look at verse 5. He He says, we are destroying, and now he's going to explain what the fortresses are, speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. There it is. The fortresses we are warring against are lies, deceits, false doctrines, untruths, half-truths, twisted truths. Things that don't line up with the word of God accurately. And he says, what do we do? We try and take every man's thoughts captive in obedience to the word of God. So when you go out there and somebody is saying, well, you know, I did this or I did that. And you say, you know, the word of God says this. What you're doing is you're taking out your divinely powered weapon and you're bringing it to bear upon their mind so that their minds might become captive to the word of God. Of course, a lot of times they won't have it, but that's what warfare is. We are to be attacking those philosophies, those demonic philosophies and worldly speculations and holding them up to the word of God and exposing them to the word of God, which has the power and is only the power to destroy them. Truth is the only antidote to error. Paul describes the same kind of thing in chapter six of second Corinthians. Look there. Look at verse seven. Here he is talking about what it means to commend yourself to God. And he's saying we commended ourselves to God. And he lists a whole bunch of things. But I just want to point out the same kind of imagery that is being used in the text we're looking at. In verse 7, he says, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. His whole point is this. Listen, as a Christian, you've got to get into the battle. You must grab the shield of faith. You must grab the sword of the spirit. You must trust in the word of God. You must wield, speak, live the truth. That's how you do it. That's what it means to engage in warfare. It doesn't mean go out and bomb some clinic. It doesn't mean to go out there and attack somebody. It means speaking and living the truth, living by faith. Sometimes I get up early in the morning and I just pray, Lord, I want you to help me today live with my armor, live by faith and live by the word of God. Do you ever pray that? Get in the habit of it. Try and make it your habit. Every day I'm going to get up and I'm going to say, Lord, help me live in the power of your spirit today. Help me to walk by your truth. Help me to wield the sword at error. 
That's what it means. So if you find yourself lingering around temptation, playing cat and mouse with sin, I gave you seven practical steps you can take to remedy the situation so your blood won't be on my hands. One, confess your sin to God. Two, put on the full armor of God. Three, pray to God for deliverance, strength, and wisdom to escape from sin and temptation. Four, be sober in spirit. Five, stay on the alert. Six, know that Satan and his demons are out there and they want you dead. Seven, resist Satan's temptations by standing firm in the faith. And if you do that, you will be able to have some victory. But if you don't, you won't. You will fail. There's a classic hymn that uh, I want to just read to you now in closing. It's called Yield Not to Temptation. And as I go through and I read this, I want you to just notice how this hymn picks out a lot of the truths that we just learned from the word of God. The words are as follow, yield not to temptations for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. Fight manfully onward, dark passions subdue. Look, oh, look ever to Jesus, he'll carry you through. Shun evil companions, bad language disdain. God's name hold in reverence, nor take it in vain. Be thoughtful and earnest, kind-hearted and true. Look ever to Jesus, He'll carry you through to him that overcometh. God giveth a crown true through faith. We will conquer though often cast down. He who is our savior, our strength will renew. Look ever to Jesus. He'll carry you through. And then the chorus is this. Ask the savior to help you. Comfort, strengthen and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He will carry you through. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you for all that it teaches us about sin and avoiding sin and not succumbing to temptation. Father, I just thank you that you are so gracious to us and your word has solutions. We don't need to be victims to temptation. We don't need to be standing there and getting shot at. Father, we can walk around, we can see evil and hide ourselves from it. We can put on the full armor that you have provided. We can resist the devil by living and walking according to your word. Father, we don't need to be victims because when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, repented of our sins and trusted only in your son, you gave us all we needed to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ to equip us for every good work. And Father, now we can be on the offensive and we can go out and wage war with spiritual weapons for the right hand and for the left. Father, help us to do that every single day, every single moment and every single minute. For your glory, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.